This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Launchpad on Business Radio. Welcome. You're listening to Launchpad here on Business Radio, SiriusXM 132. I'm Rob Conybeer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, a leading venture capital firm where we focus on investing in early stage companies. So I'm thrilled to have Andre Haddad, the CEO of Turo, join me today. It's particularly exciting for me because, Andre, you may not remember this, but you were my very first guest on the show over six years ago in January of 2014. And I think we scheduled something where you were going to come in and then the pandemic happened and we kind of moved some stuff around. Uh, but it's great to have you back on the show. Thanks. Thanks for thanks, joining Rob. Me. I'm super excited to be back. Yeah, I, I love it. I didn't realize I was the very first uh, show in 2014. That's awesome. It's a big honor. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Well, it's great to have you back. And, um, you know, I, I don't think we need to worry too much about covering too much ground because the company, your your company, Turo, has come a long way since then. I think it might have even been called by another name at that time, Relay Rides. I can't remember whether you had done the <laughs> is true. rebranding yet. No, we did the rebranding actually in uh, late 2015. So, so uh, we were called Relay Rides for the first few years of the company's history and uh, Turo for the last seven plus years. Uh, and, you know, the business has def- definitely changed quite a bit since our first talk in 2014. Yeah. So, you know, I'd love to come back to the the, the rebranding for, uh, you know, when, when we get a little deeper in. But for people that are listening now, not familiar with Turo, could you just give a quick overview of what Turo is and um, and, and what the company does? Sure, I'd be happy to. So and in, in simply, uh, Turo is the world's largest peer-to-peer car sharing platform. So we have uh, an app. Uh, on iOS and Android, we have a website on Turo.com that allows people who have cars to be able to list them and earn income with their underutilized expensive cars. And it enables uh, businesses and entrepreneurs to start small business on Turo, building up their fleets and building up uh, small uh, car sharing operations on top of our platform. And for guests who download the app, it's a great way to access an amazing selection of cars, no matter where you are. We have an amazing network of locations across the country and expanding around the world. And the selection of vehicles is just priceless. Uh, Rob, as you know, we have a lot of cars that you can't find anywhere else uh, when you find them on Turo. Uh, Everything from $20 a day car to $1,500 a day cars, you know, vintage cars, uh, sports cars, uh, but also basic utilitarian cars. So we've got everything more than 1,500 makes and models. And that's what makes 3D Turo very special for consumers is you've got at the tap of your finger on this app access to just this bewildering selection of cars near you. Uh, And you've got a very special experience meeting with uh, a host uh, who will be sharing their personal car with you. And I think that makes for a very special and memorable experience. So for the user, if somebody's renting a car, what do they do? They go to your site. Does it feel like going to uh, a rental car company or, or how does that work? You know, I hope not. <laughs> uh, rental car companies uh, aren't exactly well known for delivering, you know, unique, inspiring experiences with, uh, you know, their cookie cutter selection of vehicles, uh, and uh, with the fact that you can't really book the, exactly the car that you want to drive. You just book a category of vehicles like an economy car or an SUV or a midsize sedan. On Turo, it's a very different experience. You know, you download the app or you go to the website and you search for, you know, destination and dates, obviously, but then we'll show you the exact car that you might be interested in booking. And you can really filter by all kinds of different ways, by price, by location on a map, uh, by make and model and trim, by price. And uh, in many ways, it feels closer to the experience of actually purchasing a car, except that you're only going to have the car for a few days when you're going to drive it during your trip. Well, one of the things that I remember with the business is how do you get something like that started? And one of the things I wanted to ask you about is 
Could you, can you characterize just how big the company is at this point and the, the offering? Uh, I'm not sure I can share a lot of numbers today, Rob. Uh, okay. But, uh, you know, we, we definitely have, uh, have grown quite a bit uh, over the last few years. Uh, you know, we have uh, a huge community of hosts and guests across the U.S., across Canada, which is our uh, second market that we've uh, launched a few years ago, and now across the UK, which we launched more recently. So we're, we're very excited about the uh, growth that we've seen over the last few years. And typically, I'd say if you were to uh, go to any of our uh, big destinations, uh, you know, places like uh, Los Angeles or Miami or San Francisco or Hawaii or, you know, Alaska, Anchorage this summer, <laughs> which became a huge destination uh, with uh, all the travel to Alaska uh, the, and the pent up uh, demand to go to Alaska. Uh, you know, you'll see just an amazing selection of cars, you know, hundreds, thousands of vehicles will be available and uh, you'll be able, I think, to find an amazing deal. In fact, uh, what's happened over the last few months in particular with uh, the return of travel and uh, the ensuing rental car crunch uh, that you, I'm sure, have experienced or heard about or read about, what we found was uh, we were able to provide a lot of alternatives for people who were just stuck without any car, <laughs> uh, in particular in places like Hawaii and Anchorage. And uh, many of our hosts stepped up and listed more and more cars to take advantage of uh, the return of travel. And frankly, they saved millions of consumers' travel plans this summer. So we're super excited to see the both. I, I uh, have to say, I those. experienced some sticker shock when I flew on a college tour with my middle daughter. And uh, we went and rented a car. And um, just the sticker shock was crazy. It was more expensive than the actual plane flight. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, yeah, there, there's, there's been an incredible price inflation on rental car. In fact, uh, in I think the June CPI, or maybe it was the July CPI, uh, which showed a pretty high inflation overall, the number one contributor uh, for the uh, growth in the CPI index in the US in June or July was rental car prices, which were up almost 90% year over year. So uh, prices have gone up, our, our hosts have stepped up and listed their vehicles and I think have saved many people from those shockingly high prices, uh, as well as just simply saved people's travel plans because there were no availability in some destinations from the traditional and rental car networks. So how does insurance work with it for people that are wondering, do my, does uh, my it, regular insurance cover me? Does Turo offer insurance? What happens if something happens to my car? Yeah, big question. I always get that question. What about insurance? How does it work? Um, so, you know, we've figured out how to make insurance work really well for both hosts and guests over the past, you know, 10 years of building the business. Uh, in fact, you know, next month is going to be, uh, this September is going to be my 10th tour anniversary. So I'll be celebrating my 10th anniversary with the company. Uh, and uh, I can tell you, we've uh, really uh, figured out how to build phenomenal insurance protection offerings over the last few years. So specifically, if you're the consumer, you know, that is uh, booked the car, what you do is you can, uh, you know, your, your car price includes uh, liability coverage that's provided uh, by Turo's liability insurance partner, Liberty Mutual here in the United States and, you know, other insurance companies around the world. And then you can also choose to add, um, you know, a uh, protection package that protects you against any physical damage that might happen to the vehicle, sort of a comp and collision type coverage that you will find also available in other rental car, traditional rental car networks. And so we have different levels of packages with different pricing and different deductibles based on consumer preferences. Uh, some people are more conservative and will want to have, you know, sort of a zero deductible package. Others are a bit more risk-taking uh, and are more value-oriented and will accept uh, you know, a deductible but will benefit from the lower price uh, that that would generate for them. So it works pretty much like uh, you know, a uh, traditional sort of rental car insurance. On the host side, if you decided to list your vehicle on Turo, this is where I think our insurance and protection packages are really unique. And we've pioneered things that were not available before in the market. 
because no one else was earning money with their car uh, before Jira existed. And so uh, on the host side, you know, your personal insurance won't cover you for any commercial activity you have with your car. It only covers you for personal activity. And so this is where the Turo insurance and protection packages step in and take precedence. Uh, so we will provide the host who has listed their car with primary coverage from a liability standpoint, again, through our partner, Liberty Mutual. And also we give them access to different physical damage protection packages, again, different packages based on price and deductibles, some hosts. Uh, want to earn more and have a small deductible in case there is a physical damage on their vehicle. Others are, you know, do not want to cover any cost related to physical damage and do not have any deductibles and they pay a bit more to get that protection from us. So a phenomenal, very well balanced, you know, insurance protection packages for both hosts and guests. So if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Connybeer. And this is Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. My guest today is Andre Haddad, the CEO of Turo, which is the world's first and largest peer-to-peer car sharing marketplace. So one of the things that I've been really fascinated about with Turo, having been involved and we were an early investor, Shasta's an early investor in the company, is the company's gone through many different phases of growth over the years to get to where it is. And it's interesting because... There are some things that were the right things to do at the time that don't work as you get bigger. And there are some that as you get bigger, you can start to do things that you couldn't do earlier on. And the one that I thought was really interesting was back in the very earliest days of the company, when rather than adding technology to solve a problem, you actually remove technology because as as you recall, we had all these um, these devices that would allow you to get into a car and we're like, oh, we don't want to have people in the equation. And I remember when you came in, this is a decade ago, and said, hey, actually, having people in the equation makes it easier. And I, you know, I, I, I just love to hear that story about, about how it really unlocked the marketplace in the early days, back when there were only like 20 cars in the marketplace overall. Great. Uh, uh, I have a lot of fond memories of those moments, Rob. Uh, you're right. Back in 2011, when I joined as CEO, took over from Shelby, our founder, Shelby Clark, we had a very different model in uh, the marketplace itself. We had uh, spent uh, quite a bit of efforts developing hardware that we would install in every vehicle. And that hardware was really magical. You know, it enabled a host to uh, essentially have a self-rental car experience, you know, where, (laughs) you know, they didn't have to be present when the uh, guest showed up to pick up the car because this hardware enabled the guest to unlock the vehicle and start the vehicle without actually having the keys of the car. They were just using the app in order, you know, in order to unlock and and, and drive the vehicle. So it was really magical. Uh, It was, uh, you know, something that uh, I think, took years in the making and uh, was was very expensive and 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 very sort of cutting edge unfortunately you know that uh, hardware also had a lot of different issues uh, that were perhaps uh, not well considered at that time or as we all know you know we sort of learn as we deploy things uh, and we see what people actually do and not just tell you what they will do uh, so what were people doing was you know, it, we realized it was a huge barrier for host adoption. Huge. You know, you had to sign up on the website back then, and then uh, we would, uh, you know, have to uh, um, wait for. You would have to wait for a week or so before we could ship you the hardware. Uh, then you would have to take your car and the hardware to a car electronics shop that was. Uh, carefully vetted <laughs> uh, yeah. and there were only a few a few locations in our test markets back then in in Boston and in San Francisco and those uh, car electronics shops were carefully vetted because the installation was actually quite complex uh, and uh, uh, was uh, both expensive and lengthy uh, and and uh, sometimes hard to predict you know how some of the electronics would react some of the in-car electronics would react to having this foreign 
object that's been impl implemented. And you know, within... It's like, how'd you mess up my car? And then it just ends yeah, up. Exactly. And we had some of those situations, unfortunately. Yes, we had some yeah. of those situations. But but anyway, that, that whole friction of, you know, I'm interested in earning money with my vehicle because I have this underutilized car to the moment where I actually can make it ready to be able to welcome a few guests, you know, many days, sometimes two weeks uh, would, uh, you know, would uh, have to uh, uh, take hold. And, and we thought, uh, we saw the numbers and we realized that, uh, you know, that friction, uh, that delayed gratification uh, was, was a huge issue. Well, huge what, I'm, issue. what I'm curious about is, I remember coming to the board meeting where you mentioned, hey, we're going to just open up the marketplace and we're going to rip out the technology and we're going to have people hand the key to each other, or get the key. How did that decision get made within the company? Now it was small at the time, but you could argue it's kind of one of those bet the company type moves. I mean, how does it well, happen? It was, is it just like a flash of inspiration. You're like, okay, let's do it. Or does it unfold over like three weeks or a couple months or two days? You know, my, my analogy was, uh, you know, uh, Turo at that time was in the stage uh, of sort of e-commerce before shipping. You know, what happened in e-commerce before <laughs> shipping? It, you know, it was, there was very little e-commerce, right? Because we know shipping is, is incredibly important uh, part of enabling e-commerce and making it easy and, and, and scalable. But before shipping and before modern shipping and affordable shipping, what happened was people would meet in person in order to exchange goods. They would use, you know, classifieds websites. They would, the, you remember the era of, <laughs> of uh, let's meet in know, a safe location uh, and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Let's let's you meet bring in the, the cash, local. I'll bring uh, the goods. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Uh, this is the world before shipping, before you know, payment, uh, online payments. Uh, kind of the the early days of of uh, e-commerce. Uh, certainly, the early days of platforms like eBay, where I was involved in Ibizar, which I founded in the late 1990s. At that time, you know, there was no, um, there was no online payments, you know, shipping was very different from what it is today. It was very complicated and expensive to ship parcels and, and, and boxes between consumers. So what people would do is they would use the platform to find the item that they wanted to, to buy and then figure out a way to meet in person uh, to exchange the good and the and the and the and the money, and you know that was I think a, a very similar analogy to what's happening with peer-to-peer -peer car sharing. It was very just the very beginning. Uh, there were there were uh, you know many things that were still uh, that you know we hadn't figured out, and one of the big elements that we hadn't figured out is to build trust and safety, and to enable people to trust one another. You know, we oh, didn't have a lot of data of like learning from the marketplace as you go along. Exactly. Exactly. You, you know, we didn't have a lot of data to be very sophisticated in terms of our, you know, fraud models or our identity models. We had no data. Right. And your question or, you know, what you said in your question was, you know, I think point on, which is different strategies for different stages of development. You know, in the early days, you have no data. So what do you do? <laughs> you're not going to run. You're not going to have A-B tests. You're not going to build models, machine learning, you know, you're not going to do any of that stuff because there's no data. Uh, and there's no substitute for having the proprietary data from the platform to, to build these you know, important models. And so we thought it was important actually to not just remove the barrier of becoming a host, but also building the trust be between hosts and guests. So instead of the automated you know, technology-enabled experience that we had initially, we pivoted completely to a much more community-based experience where hosts and guests were now people. Uh, we built a whole suite of community products on the platform. We built a profile page. We built a profile photo. We built possibilities for people to message one another and exchange uh, information about their profile, their background, where they work, where they went to school, where they live. And we felt that uh, enabling that connectivity uh, on the human uh, level was going to bridge the gap in terms of trust. And, and then, of course, enabling the personal key handoff and enabling the hosts and guests to meet in person it's, was it's going to actually make things a lot more. It's a critical component because I, I remember you talking about it afterwards and saying, hey, guess what? Actually, our fraud rates have gone down. So yeah, it were like all these ancillary yeah. benefits that Completely. happened. And that, that board discussion, I remember because the company only had like, I don't know, 15 people at the time, something like that was, 
it was robust. But after about 45 minutes, people were like, yeah, let's try it. You know, Andre came from eBay. He was a decade at eBay. He probably knows how marketplaces work. Let's <laughs> let's give it a shot. And then it really worked, as, as I recall. And it really, yeah. you know, that was what, what sparked it. Um, yeah, so what, what happened, uh, Rob, yeah. just, uh, just if I may, what happened uh, just for the audience to understand, especially the audience interested in how platforms work and marketplaces work, what's really important for a marketplace business to, to work is, you know, supply and demand need to grow really quickly together. And so very important in order to unlock that growth of supply and demand, particular supply, is to make supply accessible and make it easy for people to become suppliers on the marketplace. And, and, and so what happened for us is when we decided we're gonna remove this hardware, that freed us from having to have all these, uh, you know, car electronics shops that I was telling you about that we need to vet manually and go city by city, neighborhood by neighborhood. Suddenly, we were able to build this business in a much more open and scalable way. And, and once we made that decision, instead of just being operating in a couple of test markets and then carefully planning the third and the fourth and the fifth market and building all this you know, field operation that we needed to build in order to you know, distribute the hardware and install it and all of that, suddenly we're able to launch nationwide. And in a matter of you know, just a few hours, we started the, seeing the business go on a completely different trajectory of growth. And that's really critical when you're building a platform business, you're building a marketplace business, consumer or B2B, you know, you, you, you've got to get the fuel, you've got to build in the fuel that will fuel that growth. And the most important ingredient for that growth fuel is uh, accessibility of supply, accessibility of demand. Yeah, yeah. Well, People always ask the chicken or egg question, but in, in marketplaces, at least what I've learned from Turo and a few of the other companies that have been involved with over time, it actually is, say, the chicken. There is an answer, but you, you have to satisfy the supply at some point where they feel satisfied, but you don't have a marketplace if you don't have supply. Like You absolutely have to start there to unlock absolutely. it. So that's that's super interesting, and I think... Um, you know, the other thing I think about with the, the business is it's almost like the, the analogy, I, I don't think I've mentioned this to you, but I've always thought that Turo is like tuning a radio. Okay. Remember those old analog radios where you would turn a knob and mm -hmm. there was a station, but imagine if the station was constantly changing frequency. And as the business grows, you're just fiddling with the knobs to get it to work at that stage of the marketplace's growth. And um, how do you how do you manage that as a team? You know, the fact that you're you're always change, you, you kind of always have to change the playbook for like the next stage of growth. Yeah, I think of our team as, you know, managing as the stewards and managers of this platform a little bit like how a central bank is trying to manage the economy. You know, you're always on the you know you're you're Get always money? on the lookout okay. for well you know you're you're uh, essentially creating you know the 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 infrastructure for for growth and economic activity to happen on this platform for of course for us it's just our our Turo platform for the central bank it's the entire economy but what what we do is very similar to what bankers do and and others do is we we are looking very closely and all the time at uh, a, a variety of indicators, both qualitative and quantitative. And so for us, what we do is we have a real obsession with customer feedback, real obsession. Uh, we have, uh, you know, we've been running NPS uh, surveys since 2011. Uh, we've been uh, gathering all of the feedback between left from hosts to guests and guests to hosts and other private feedback that is left by both parties on the platform. We've been getting feedback from the App Store, from the Google Play Store, you know, a lot of different qualitative uh, feedback sources that we digest on a daily basis. And I can tell, I can't tell you, Rob, how much this feedback is both humbling, inspiring, and really pushes our innovation. Um, and I'll, I can give you some examples if you're interested later on. Uh, definitely, I can I can think of at least a few major changes that we've done that were directly related to some of that feedback. And then we look at the quantitative metrics. You know those knobs that you're you're referring to the radio. 
lots of metrics around supply, demand, by location, prices. Uh, we look at uh, uh, the uh, you know the conversion metrics. We look at the uh, utilization rate metrics. We look at a whole host of numbers. And you know the the more, of course, we have numbers, and the more we have volume of, of feedback and 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 uh, you know qualitative feedback, the better equipped we are as a team to do a better job of managing the marketplace. Yeah, and I've I've got to believe with looking at the customer feedback, there have been a few times where you're like, actually, we're not going to do that. But most of the time, you have I I know you have a very long list of things that you you'd like to do, and um, you know, it just seems like it's a treadmill of things when you when you have a marketplace business doing that. Oh yeah, so. it's a it's a never ending. It's like uh, I tell our team that we we got job security, <laughs> given that <laughs> we have so many things that our community wants us to do, and that we know we agree with them that these are valuable things that we should build, uh, and and uh, you know we we get to them one after the other, but we'd love to get to them as fast as we can. But there's always a bigger volume of you know, to do's and we actually execute. And then occasionally something comes in and you're like, wow, something we hadn't even thought about, we actually need to implement pretty quickly. So Andre, we spent the first half of the show talking about Turo, building a marketplace. And where I'd, what I'd like to do in the second half of the show is really talk about your, your career journey and your life journey a bit. And having been in Silicon Valley for 20, 22 years before moving up to Seattle. One of the things that I saw as a venture capitalist was the, the number of immigrants that really power the, the tech industry, et cetera, and some people that grew up in some pretty tough circumstances. And as I understand it, you, you grew up in Beirut and in Lebanon in the midst of a civil war and I'm curious if, you know, how do you connect the dots between being down in the basement of an apartment building, wondering whether the building's going to drop on you, you know, because of bombs that are getting dropped, to founding a company and then a senior executive at eBay for a decade and then running Turo? Like, could you just walk through that path? You know, is it something that you even dreamed of when you were a kid? Great question. I don't think that uh, you dream very long term you know, when you're growing up in a war-torn country and, and literally in the middle of a war zone, uh, my parents' apartment building uh, was uh, literally um, 300 meters away from the green line that separated East from West Beirut. And uh, that green line was, you know, effectively the war zone in the first, uh, you know, few episodes of the civil war that started in 1975 and that uh, ended in 1990. And uh, in that kind of environment, I think uh, you don't really plan ahead. You know, you, you just try to focus on survival. You try to focus on the short term. You try to do what you have available to you. And, and that was really the overall, I'd say, the overall context of, uh, of those early years for me. I was very lucky. Uh, in uh, in 1988, uh, you know, I, I don't want to paint a picture that uh, you know the war was was long. It was 15 years, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't intense every day for 15 years. There were ups and downs. You know, there were periods where life was almost normal. Uh, of course, we couldn't go get past the green line, uh, but there was, uh, you know, there were there were months, sometimes extended periods of time where life was almost normal. It was, of course, in the background and the fear was always there, but, you know, we were not under the bombs every day. So I don't want to, you know, create a sort of a, a picture here that that isn't truthful to the audience. But when when things did blow up, you know, it was very, very scary. And one of those very scary moments was uh, in June 89. So, you know, shortly before the end of the war, of course, we had no idea that the war was going to end at that point in time. But in June 89, our apartment building was bombed. And a, we were, you know, we that night we were in the shelter, the underground shelter, which uh, was uh, built. Um, it was not a real shelter. It was the underground parking garage that was transformed into a, a shelter for the yeah, It's just for a the bunch of civilians uh, that are trying to survive a war. 
exactly, exactly. And so, and that night we were we were in the shelter, and the a, one of the shells landed in my bedroom. So I, we were very glad that uh, you know we were not we had not stayed in the apartment, and I hadn't stayed in my bedroom. So we came very very close wow. uh, to to uh, you know very close to uh, seeing um, what what. Uh, what a bombardment uh, would represent really in terms of loss of life. And, and uh, of course we lost, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of our belongings there, but, you know, we're all safe and sound. And, and that's, that's, I think when, uh, you know, that was like the tipping point where I, I started seriously considering trying to find, you know, and, and build a new life somewhere else you know, as a 17 year old back then, you know, you, you don't have a, a lot of uh, abilities to imagine the future, especially since, you know, the war was everything that I've seen, but I knew that there were, could, could be some options. Uh, and I was very lucky that the summer uh, before, so the summer of 1988, I had met with a, a cousin who uh, was uh, uh, getting married in Beirut and in one of those episodes where life was almost normal, uh, you know, the summer before that. And uh, he was based in France and, you know, I spoke with him and he was the first one actually uh, that started, started me thinking about the future and asked me questions about what do you want to be in 10 years? What do you want to do in 10 years? And, you know, no one oh, nobody ever asked, asked me that, that question, question before. Like, I'm, I'm hoping for a live <laughs> and healthy. Yeah, no one <laughs> that asked that question dead, because right? people were like, "Oh, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So why are you asking me the question in ten years from now? Let's let's try to be, you know, let's try to enjoy life for the next twenty four hours." That was, you know, the mindset, you know, when when you lived for many years, you know, in in the context of that war. So he asked me that question. Uh, I had no idea <laughs> what I wanted to be ten years later. I knew that uh, there were two things that I loved. Uh, I was, uh, you know, I love music. Music was my life back then. And I had all the mixtapes that you can imagine. You know, I spent my days uh, recording and mixing music. And and unfortunately, the bomb eliminated my entire mixtape collection. That was I was heartbroken. You cannot imagine, Rob, how heartbroken I was. My entire mixtape collection was gone you know, years wow. of, uh, of efforts and, and, and love, uh, wiped out. And then the other thing that I loved that was so unfortunately also wiped out. I was really interested in business. I was interested in entrepreneurship. I was interested in, you know, the, the stories of, of these entrepreneurs and builders and companies. And, and so I had a subscription to the economist magazine and I was reading every, every week, I would read the stories about, you know, the, you know, business and innovation and 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 uh, and entrepreneurs and and other stories that uh, I thought were inspiring. And then, of course, that entire collection of The Economist was also wiped out by by the bomb. So, those are the things that I knew I was interested in. And so I talked to him about that, and he's like, "Well, maybe you should consider going going to you know business school and learn you know the basics of." how to start a business and you know you maybe you want to do that later. So anyway, that was the connection it was as always, you know, as oh, I'm sure you you'd agree with me Rob, but life is a succession of unexpected intersections and and connections with people that end up having a huge influence on 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 your life and certainly for me, you know, that was a, a great such a great example of how serendipitous you know my trajectory then moved in a direction that I had not expected. You know, I, it so, was really so related to that conversation. Asking these questions, then having this conversation where it kind of gelled. And then what did you do to take action after that? Did you say, hey, do you think I could come live with you or? Um, exactly. I called him. Get out. I, I called him shortly after, you know, the, the bombing of our apartment. And I told him, you know, is there you know, do you think I could just move and start a new life in France? And, you know, can you help me with that? And he was incredibly generous and helped me figure out what other, what higher education options I had available. Uh, and, uh, and we tried a bunch of different things, you know, 
my school track record wasn't great because we had four months of, uh, you know, where we're sheltered at home and there were no grades for four months. We uh, didn't have, you know, some of the things that were expected in terms of, uh, you know, school accomplishments because of that. But there was, you know, there were a few options and he helped me sort through them. And, and uh, a few months later, I, uh, on, on October 13th, uh, Friday, October 13th, 1989, uh, I uh, landed in France and, you know, started uh, my higher education there. And a couple of years later, I uh, went to business school at HSC Paris uh, and uh, met many amazing people throughout, you know, those years of higher education. Some that I'd end up then co-founding iBazaar was my first company a few years later in 1999. So a few years later, uh, I co-founded iBazaar with one of my HSA friends and and kind of one thing led to another. And, and you know, definitely the trajectory was unexpected, though, to answer your question. I had no idea back in 89 that, you know, 10 years later, I would be starting my first company and, uh, and, and you know, and be, you know, in a, in a different place, different, different time. Yeah, that must have been interesting getting growing up in that environment and then getting on a one way plane flight with what yeah. one or two bags with you <laughs> yeah i had my suitcase you know your your point about a lot of uh you know you met a lot of immigrant uh, founders and and builders in silicon valley you know one thing that connecting the dots maybe for your audience maybe some of your audience doesn't have that experience of immigration and and you know and hopefully very few have experience of living under the bombs of a war you know what? Uh, what you know? Really, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, uh, and it, it is such a true principle and philosophy. And I, you know, I remember that um, all the fears that uh, people have around entrepreneurship. You know, uh, I, I quit a, a very nice uh, job at uh, PNG. I was I actually did consulting for for a year. I hated consulting. I was in strategy consulting for a year. I hated it. And then I worked for PNG for a few years. I liked it, but it was, you know, very slow, and I wasn't going to start anything exciting there. And so I quit my job at PNG. And many of my friends back then were looked at me, and family members <laughs> and parents looked at me and said, "You must be insane. You have all these student loans. You know, I was self-funding my, I self-funded <laughs> everything. You know, uh, you have all these student loans. You know, you're you've got this terrific job." you're in this prestigious company, you know, in the next three years, you'll be at this level and that level and you'll be earning this and that. And, you know, you're like on a track. Why are you disrupting your track? Yeah. And, you know, at the moment, um, it wasn't clear to me uh, now with hindsight, I, I think I understand how I was thinking, but in the moment it was just like came from the heart, you know, I just needed to do this. It was something I was attracted to. But with time and and sort of post uh, analysis of what happened, I just think that, you know, I didn't really have much to lose. You know, when you've come so close to death <laughs> many times, you know, I, I just shared with you one example. We had a few other close encounters with death throughout those 15 years. You know, you, your your definition of risk is very different. Uh, yeah. And I think that's what drives you know, the, uh, those incredible immigrant founders, I think that's a common denominator because when you've decided to immigrate, I mean, immigration is a completely unnatural act. Like who wants to, especially at the age of 17, to leave their family, leave their home, leave the environment that they know and yeah. put themselves in a place well, where they know no one, they understand barely the language, they can barely well, speak One of the it, things that One of the things that I've thought about with the news over the last uh, week or so, when they had the interior of that C-17 cargo plane that was just filled with refugees, you know that yeah. probably in about 30 years, somebody's going to have that. They're going to have an arrow that they've put on it, pointing down at some kid that's there who started the yeah. company that destroyed Google or something like that. And it's <laughs> interesting because it really yeah. is that crucible. So if you're just tuning in, yeah. I'm Rob Connie This is Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm joined today by the CEO of Turo, Andre Haddad. So when you, when you think about 
these choices that you had, P&G, uh, kind of a paint by numbers uh, business career versus going and creating something new. Um, you know, I think you also have to put it, as we were talking before, like the context of the time, because I think it was in the late 90s when you did this. It was yes. when there was the first boom, the internet boom, when everybody could see what a company like Amazon could become, but it was the, yes. the underpinnings weren't there. You know, we'd, we'd love to just hear a little more about getting iBazaar started. And I think more significantly, uh, the acquisition by eBay and, and how that happened, because I think that was probably a pretty pivotal decision for you after you'd had a lot of success with iBazaar. You know, founding iBazaar for me was was actually a lot more personal than than just uh, you know looking at the internet and realizing that it was uh, the the future. Uh, you know, it, I mentioned music, Rob, and and how devastated I was. You know, a few years earlier when my entire mixtape collection was wiped out by uh, the bombing of our apartment. You know, I was really traumatized by by this loss, and for many years afterwards. Uh, for almost 10 years, I actually didn't mix any music. Wow. I was completely out of the music scene. I would listen, you know, to music on the radio, things like that. But I was, it was, you know, it's, it's like a consumer, not engaged in, you know, the power of music. I, I used, I was a radio DJ in Beirut for a couple of years. I had a show every Tuesday and Thursday night um, from 10 p.m. to midnight. And I was, you know, playing a lot of pioneering house music back then. And I had a lot of love for music, but I was just just traumatized by by the loss of my mixtapes. Uh, many years later, l around 1998, I started feeling the urge to rekindle my love relationship with music, and I was starting to feel a bit more secure. I had this job at PNG I was telling you about, etc. And that's when I discovered eBay. Uh, I, I was, you know, I was on a budget, you know, I had all my student loans and, you know, <laughs> Paris rents are expensive. <laughs> so I didn't have much to spend on music. And I, I had a, a very ambitious goal, which is to rebuild the entire music collection I had before. And so that meant I had to spend a lot of money if I were to try to find <laughs> all these. <laughs> yeah. And now CDs, you know, there were no tapes anymore and CDs were more expensive, et cetera. Uh, if I were to buy them new. And so I was looking for ways to buy lots of music cheaply. And that's when I stumbled upon eBay. And it was just miraculous, miraculous. Uh, it was eBay much more than Amazon. Amazon had all the brand new music and it was expensive. eBay had music from the 70s and 80s and, <laughs> and all the things that were in my mixtape collection and I could buy them cheap. And so I decided, I remember uh, like in, in, in late 1988 to buy my, to, to participate in my first auction on eBay.com. And I ended up winning the auction. <laughs> and, uh, and then I, I bought this box full of CDs and you don't really know what you were getting in these boxes. People were just had lots of CDs and they were just throwing them out. <laughs> <laughs> Mystery box. <laughs> yeah. And then I had to figure out a way to get it shipped to France and pay the seller in the U.S., uh, and I remember, you know, the first box I received, I received it with a handwritten note from the seller saying, I'm so excited. You're my first customer in France. Uh, thank you for doing this. And by the way, this is my eBay, you know, URL. If you want to buy more records, just go back <laughs> to this URL and I'm happy to sell you more. And I figured out how to, you know, do a, a, uh, I think it was a, postal money order in order to, you know, pay the, 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 the seller. And then they shipped it to me and I received it. It was a miraculous, you know, e-commerce experience well before shipping as we were talking and payments and online payments and all that cool stuff that we take for granted today even existed. Oh yeah. So companies that are now that like was, worth hundreds of billions of dollars to solve those little problems that you were having. <laughs> exactly. So it was miraculous when I received that box. I started listening to music again and, you know, it was a very special moment. And then of course the second box, the third box, but then after many boxes, I realized, you know, as I mentioned, there were lots of things that I love, but there's also lots of music that I didn't care for. And I had this accumulation of CDs. Oh, and you wanted to unload that. And I wanted to unload it because I was like, I oh, might, might as well get some cents on the dollar. And there was, you know, there was no eBay in France back then. And, and that's when the, 
idea of launching iBazaar started for me. So it was a very personal, you know, it, it was very personally motivated, driven by, and it was the right time, the right place. You know, what can I say? It was 1999, to your point, you know, e-commerce had started picking up. The internet was growing. Although you have to, and you'll, you'll remember this, Rob, but I'm sure some of your audience has no idea, but that was the era of the 288K modem. <laughs> you know, you, you, couldn't, you, couldn't receive any phone, you couldn't receive any phone calls while you were surfing the web. <laughs> Oh yeah, and uh, you know it was it was uh, you know it was not at all what it is today, and and so you you still you still had to have that belief that you could this see is the a promise, solvable but you problem. Had to believe, yeah, yeah. You're kind of yeah. You could see where it's going to get to, and it's kind of the same way that when you look at Turo today, there's a lot more of the technology going back into it, but it's the right yes. time because the infrastructure is there. Exactly. You can take exactly. pictures of cars and damage, et cetera, exactly. or, right. you know, or not damage and document it and do things that right. you kind of dreamed yeah. of in the early days, but it was either too early, technology wasn't ready, et cetera. So it sounds like that was important. So, yeah. And, uh, and uh, we, we've since, to your point, come back and re uh, started uh, in car technology, uh, but we're doing it in a different way. Now it's all software enabled. We're connected with OEM. The OEM networks, and you know, we don't have to have that hardware installation because the technology evolved quite a bit over the last ten years. Yeah. So coming back to iBazaar, you were at a time you you saw this opportunity and launched it in France. And then maybe just a quick thumbnail: what scale yeah. did it get to, and how did you end up? You know, how did eBay come knocking, or vice versa? So one one. Uh, story that I'd love to tell you is how how much my PNG experience uh, you know influenced uh, iBazaar you know I, as uh, I had spent a few years at PNG and one of the things that you know you are brainwashed to believe at PNG is the power of TV advertising <laughs> so the first thing I wanted to do once we raised our first round was to spend almost three quarters of it on a TV campaign wow <laughs> And of course, my co-founders thought this was very risky and, you know, only 3% of the population had internet access back then and why go on TV, et cetera. And I convinced them that going on TV was going to help us build a brand like no one else. And we're going to be synonymous with e-commerce on the internet. And, and we'll so own, in we'll own the channel six months by doing it, we'll own the mind share of the consumer. Like I've heard about this internet thing. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. It's actually, I, I heard about buying and selling stuff on the internet. Oh, it's iBazaar. And that's what happened. Uh, and so we launched our first TV campaign, uh, you know, shortly after our the launch of the platform. Of course, the platform crashed because the traffic was even higher than what we thought it would be. And in a matter of three months, we became the third most visited website in France. Wow. Uh, knowing that there weren't that many websites back then, but, you know, the, the top... The, the first one was like the equivalent of AOL, the, port, the portal, the internet, the ISP. The second one was free email. And then three was iBazaar. That's <laughs> pretty so unbelievable. We, yeah, that was just unbelievable. Uh, the, the problem, though, of course, back then, as we were talking, there was no online payments. There was no shipping. There was also no monetization for, for those platforms, for those, you know, the ability to, uh, to uh, collect payments and then pay out sellers, you know, that, that ability was, was not existent, you know, credit card payments, online payments, and then payouts for sellers at a micro level, you know, just did not exist back then. And so we skyrocketed from a popularity standpoint, but the business, the platform was essentially free to use for a very, very long time. And we started monetizing uh, the platform and all the traffic through advertising, because that was a lot easier to monetize, you know, you don't have to build you know, uh, buyer seller intermediated payments in order to monetize the platform with advertising. So unfortunately, despite the scale, and then we launched in uh, Italy and Spain and, and Netherlands and Belgium and, and Portugal and Brazil, and we, you know, this, and every country would apply the same formula, go on TV, own the internet, the e-commerce uh, space. And then we became like the fifth or third most visited website in Italy and then Spain and blah, blah, blah. So we had built a very powerful franchise from a user and activity and kind of GMV standpoint, but that GMV was not monetized. And so when the 
you know, and, when and the Andre, uh, we're going to have to wrap in about a minute. So be great to just tie it to eBay. Yeah. So when the internet crashed and, and the NASDAQ crashed in 2000 and, you know, 2001, you know, funding uh, for startups sort of, you know, disappeared, we had a great franchise, a lot of, you know, a lot of activity, but no monetization and a lot of cash burn. And of course the advertising market crashed. So whatever little monetization we had through online advertising crashed with it. And so we were like the perfect acquisition target for, for eBay, which was interested in expanding from its US home base to Europe, which everybody knew was going to be, you know, as big or maybe even bigger over time from a market standpoint than the US given the population and GDP. So we were, uh, you know, we needed we needed a new home, and that's how you know the acquisition well, happened. Uh, it's in a great story, and I think to put a bow on it, Andre, what's really interesting, and and this is really bringing it together for me, is life is a journey with these things, and careers are a journey, and you you had you've had these huge ups and downs, and in this circumstance, you had something that was working really well, but it was against the backdrop of running out of money, and the world had changed. Yeah. And then going to eBay and having a 10-year career there and the success you had there put you in the perfect position to make some of these big moves with the team at, at Relay Rides, which became Turo, et cetera. Turo, so exactly. I really appreciate your, your walking us through this story. It's really, it's interesting to see how these ups and downs happen. And um, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. Look forward to uh, continuing to tell the story, you know, five years. <laughs> yeah, no, we'll definitely, definitely have you back. Maybe we won't wait seven years next time. But again, Andre, right. thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. And thank you for joining us. If you missed any of the last hour, you can find it on the SiriusXM app and follow Business Radio on Twitter at SXM Business. You can also follow me on Twitter at Rob Conybeer. I'm Rob Conybeer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures. And you've been listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 